Step 10 says we continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Welcome to episode 288 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Anne, John, Susan, and Amelia. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Anne, John, Susan, and Amelia, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with a seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer and I am your host today, although I'm actually recording this in my hotel room in New York City where I'm on a business trip. Today I want to share with you Mary Pearl T. on Step 10. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory and we went wrong promptly admitted it. Thank you. You note that the step says when we were wrong, not if we were wrong. (laughs) This goes right along with your spirit of step nine. You have now entered the world of the spirit. And our next step is to grow in effectiveness and usefulness to our higher power. This is the beginning of a lifetime job that you're going to do on step 10. I hear people talk about steps 10, 11, and 12 are maintenance steps. I like to think of them as growth steps. I don't want to just maintain. I want to keep growing and changing and what have you. And the the key is why promptly? I love the way the steps are written, you know. They just really nail you to the wall. Promptly so you don't get the chance to procrastinate. You don't get to rationalize or justify your behavior or attitude. You make it promptly. And that way you don't have to carry any guilt or any resentment or any other negative feelings around if you take care of stuff promptly. You know, it's like in your home, if you take care of little accidents, my husband tickles me. Whenever he spills anything, he panics and he stares at it. Now, if that would clean it up, I would be okay with that. But to me, when you spill something, you promptly get something to clean it up with. Because if you don't let it get a hold of you, or if you don't let it dry, it's easier to take care of. And it's the same thing here. When you're looking back over your day, when you've done something wrong, promptly admit it, if nothing else, but to yourself. And then take care of it. Okay. It's a continuation of your steps four and five on a daily basis. You can't carry a grudge around with promptly. You ever think about it? My sister told me one time we were traveling across the United States in 1992, and um, it was the year after our mother had died, and we, were, we took a month off and just took a trip. She said, I never get to go anywhere. You get to go everywhere. I said, I'm so sick of your whining. I said, shut up and get in the car. She said, where are we going? I said, everywhere. And so we did. We just went as the Spirit leads, and we just went all over the United States, put 10,000 miles on a car in a month. 
you know, driving and seeing, showing her all these things that she always wished she'd seen and never got an opportunity to see. And we were going along, and she said, you know, Bobby hurt my feelings, and I will never forgive him for that. Till the day I die, I will not forgive him for that. And I said, well, for God's sake, what did he do? And she said, well, she was sweet on a friend of his when she was 16 years old. And she said, Bobby teased me in front of him and embarrassed me. I'll never forgive him for that. And I said, well, Dorothy, Bobby's been dead since 1951. Do you think it's bothering him a hell of a lot? (laughs) I don't care. I'm never going to forgive him. Okay. See, my sister's a grudge holder. She doesn't ever get past something like that. You know, it's a real fortunate thing she doesn't get angry very much. But we've had some new developments there I'll share with you later. Um, The thing about it is when you have to promptly admit you're wrong. J.D. and I had a situation a few years ago. He talks about a lot of things that never come to pass. You know, he's always going to do this, he's going to do that, and it doesn't come to pass. You don't think too much about it. And he told me he was thinking about putting a water garden in the backyard. And so he talked about it for several years. I saw some books come into the house about water gardens, but I saw no water garden, so it's not a big deal. I went away to Kentucky one weekend, I came back, and I have two poodles. And I uh, got home late Sunday night, And everything was fine as far as I could tell. The next morning I woke up and um, my bed felt funny. And I look and there's mud all over my sheets. And it's like waking up with a horse head in the Godfather. You're just like, what is this? You know. (laughs) And I look and my black dogs are brown. They are muddy. And it's like they're under the cover with you. And it's like, what happened here? And so I'm looking, and there's mud on my carpet. There's mud in my house. Where is all this mud coming from? Okay, while I was gone, J.D. decided he would put in the water garden. And all this dirt that came out of the hole for the water garden, he's watched too many movies, and I think he thought he was Steve McQueen, where you, you know, walk across the prison yard and let the dirt out under your pants. (laughs) He decided he would scatter the dirt all across the backyard. It rained that night. Now, J.D., when the water garden, every book I saw said the water garden is from 18 inches to two two foot deep. Ours was five foot deep. You can swim in ours. (laughs) So that was a tremendous amount of dirt that came out of there. And there was now a river of mud in the backyard that was in the house by way of the dogs. And I called my sponsor and I said, I'm going to kill him for sure. (laughs) I'm going to kill him. There's no question in my mind. He deserves to die. I can't tell you what my mouth is a river of mud. And so I said, I just, I'm just, I don't know what to do. And she said, lock the pet door so the dogs can't get out in the backyard. That's a start. Bathe the dogs. It's like sometimes when you get into that, you need somebody that can give you specific, concise things to do because you're so overwhelmed, you can't think of what to do. And so I bathe the dogs, and and see, the mud can't be cleaned up in the house until it dries. You just smear mud, you know. 
And so my dogs are sitting there. Now my dogs have their own pet door and have all their lives. How often do they go out? I don't know. Don't care. Well, it makes a difference when they're locked in. (laughs) So every hour on the hour, I'm taking my dogs on a leash out in the front, and they're going, why are we out here? (laughs) What is she doing? And then here an hour later, here we are again. And they're looking at me, they're walking and sitting down going, what are we supposed to do? This is not what you're supposed to be doing. So when my husband came home later that afternoon, he saw me out in the yard with the dogs and he says, what's the matter? I said, go in the house, take a look around and have a solution by the time I get back. (laughs) And when I went in, he was sitting with his head on the bar going, oh God, oh God, oh God. And I said, funny you didn't mention that we had a pond in the backyard. Oh, God. (laughs) Funny you didn't mention it was going to be so deep, isn't it? And he said, funny you did it behind my back while I was gone. Yep, yep. You see, he wanted to make it bigger than what we had discussed, talked about, And he figured that once it was in, what could I say or do? You know, he found out. (laughs) I could say and do plenty. But the main thing was, what are we going to do? Not only that, we're having house guests in two days. And we're having a yard party in a couple of weeks. And here is this river of mud on the yard. Well, we let the mud dry in the house. We cross-fenced the yard to where the patio became the end of the yard until the yard could dry up. Well, it was going to take a long time for the grass to survive under the mud and then come out. And so my sister decided she would help him. And so for our yard party, uh, we were the, the best yard in the neighborhood. We had AstroTurf. Hundreds of dollars of AstroTurf out in the backyard because, see, we put this water garden in to save money. (laughs) I was very, very angry. I was angry. I felt that I had been uh, disrespected because I had been left out of the loop. It had happened behind my back, and I martyred on that, had a really hard time with that. And then finally, uh, several months went by, and I was just telling him, I, you know, I hate the water garden. I hate everything about the water garden. And the more that he put it in, the more it looked like a swimming pool. And I said, it's not a swimming pool. And I said, not only that, it's not safe. He said, what do you mean it's not? And I said, well, J.D., if the dogs are playing soccer, and he had gotten, this was nothing, kill me. I saw these big sheets of marble coming in the backyard, and he took a hammer to them. And he's breaking the marble in, and he's making this mosaic thing around the pool. And I'm going, what the hell are you doing? I said, it looks more like a swimming pool now than it did. Look like a deck on a swimming pool. And he says, well, it's really not turned out the way I had envisioned. I said, I would hope not. <laughs> but I said, if the dogs are playing soccer, which they do all the time, and if the ball goes into the pond, the dogs will go after it, and they'll drown. He said, they can swim. I said, for how long? They can't swim forever. And when you're in water five foot deep and there is no shallow place to get out, how does a dog swim forever and then propel himself out? (laughs) I said, how how, how do you propose they do that? Oh, I said, it's dangerous. I don't like it. I hate it. 
I hate you. I hate you for putting it there. So we went on, and it was not a nice time in our home. And for the first time, I'm wondering, you know, maybe maybe we don't need to be together. If he thinks like this, and I got off on my soapbox about being left out of the loop and being so martyring about that. And then I prayed, and I said, God, what is the solution to this? I can't seem to get over it. I can't get around it. What is the deal? And so God changed the cable channel. Isn't it funny, the solution God comes up with? And he put the Home and Garden show on our TV. <laughs> and they were showing water gardens, and they were showing the different yards and things, and, and they were talking about the gardener's dream, and I just wanted to puke. And uh, <laughs> I realized I had rained all over his dream. His dream had not turned out like he wanted it to either, but he had to stand by it because I was so adamant against it. You know how you have to take sides and dig in. And so when he came in, I told him, I said, I understand um, the, that you're, you didn't intend for it to turn out. And he said, is there anything you like about it? I said, no. It's too deep. It's too big. The, the marble looks crappy. It's dangerous. I can't find anything good about that water garden. He says, what do you want me to do? Just fill in the hole? And I said, No, I don't guess so. I said, I know that's your dream, and I've rained all over your dream. I just don't want us to fight anymore about it. And he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think that you, excuse me, you need to make it safe where my dogs can't get hurt. Because I said, J.D., if one of my dogs drowned, you'll have to leave. Because these are my kids. Not having children, my dogs are my kids. And these were dogs that were 14, 15 years old. I could not have just... Forgive and forget if my dog drowned because of his stupidity. I just couldn't have done it. And so anyway, he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I've been thinking. And I said, you know, I have traveled all over the world, and I collect rocks wherever I go. And I'm talking about big rocks. I get tickled sometimes. You get to the airport, and the sky cap says, what do you got in here, rocks? I said, no, rock, one, 75-pound rock. <laughs> and, and I had these rocks from all over. And I said, and they had, I had them around a cactus garden. And I said, I'll give up the cactus garden if you take those rocks and build it around the pond so that the dogs would stop when they get there instead of just, just going straight on in from momentum. And so I sacrificed my rocks and we got out there and together we redid the water garden as far as we took all that marble crap off and we put the rocks on. And I said, and I do know how to build a waterfall. And he said, where'd you learn? I said, well, I was watching that Home and Garden channel. <laughs> so we built the waterfall, and um, so then we had it, you know, it, but it was that promptly getting over it because we let that linger on. It was much harder to get over because it lingered so long. That's my point. You know, I, I had to to learn how to do that. Another thing with the defect of dishonesty, you know the best way to get cured of that? Admit it promptly. When you hear yourself tell a lie, you say, excuse me, I just told a lie. And the truth is, and then you tell the truth. You won't have to do that but two or three times till you won't be telling that lie because you know you're going to have to say, I just told a lie. And there's something about that that really grates against your nerves, you know. (laughs) At least it did mine. Uh, 
The emotional binges I used to have, I had emotional hangovers from those, you know. When you get in all that feelings, and it would make me feel terrible, terrible to have those kind of feelings later. So I had to go back and not rationalize my actions by blaming other people, but accept responsibility and go, you know, nobody made me act like that. I had a choice. I made a wrong choice. The sponsor told me that when I was doing my daily inventory to realize that every day to look for good because there's not a day goes by you don't do something good. You know, you may have some things that you need to clean up for the next day, but it's, you know, it's a poor pig who don't get an acre and every once in a while, you know, you do something. And there's a purpose in this step is to help us to acquire the habit of daily self-appraisal, accurate appraisal. You know, the 12 and 12 says there's a spiritual axiom that says, whenever I'm disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with me. And it's what am I not doing or doing that I shouldn't be or should be in this situation. Whenever I'm disturbed, no matter what the cause, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? And I hated that statement. I just hated it. But it's true. And when I let you mad, it's because I let you make me mad. You know? When you hurt my feelings, it's because I've let you hurt my feelings. No, I have a part in that, you know? There was a a black guy that used to come to our group. And he says, you know, always have choice. He said, now I'm a black man. And he said, if you call me, and he used the N-word, he says, I ask myself, are you being one? And if you are, you need to change your behavior and your attitude. And if you're not, you need to pray for that person, but under no circumstances do you need to argue with them or fight with them about it. He says, if somebody calls you something, say, am I being that way? Look at yourself, honestly. What are you doing? And then we have spot check inventory, and that's if I'm uncomfortable at any point during the day, I can look at myself and go, what is my part? Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? See, that's one of the first things I do when I'm doing my 10th step at night is how do I feel tonight? How's my feelings tonight? Am I angry? Am I hurt? What are, what are my feelings tonight? Now, what has happened that's made me feel this way? Now, why did I choose to feel this way? Could I have felt another way? You know, that kind of thing. Am I in fear? Have I been in fear today? Have I been dishonest today? Have I been resentful today? Have I been into self-pity? Poor me. Good. Yeah. At home. Yeah, they, they say this is the Al-Anon salute, you know. <laughs> I don't know. But I have to remember that fear usually breaks down into false events appearing real. Sometimes it looks that way, you know. False events appearing real. Fear is always in the future. We're afraid of what's going to happen or what's not going to happen. It's not in the now. If it's not in the now, I don't have to deal with it. You know, that takes a lot of fear out of my life. It's not happening right now. Why should I be afraid it's not happening right now? Who? And besides, who can change the future? Another, who can change the past? Even God can't change the past. The past is the past. It's gone. Five minutes ago, it's gone. We can't undo five minutes ago. It's gone. It's a done deal. Move forward. Move forward. We're right here in the now. One of my greatest teachers about right here in the now is my sister. On November 30th, 1999, 45 years to the day I watched Daddy die, my sister died in the front seat of the car with me. 
She had kidney failure. It made her heart stop. And it looked like she was having a heart attack to me. And so there I am in bumper-to-bumper traffic in front of the biggest mall. It's a Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and everybody's Christmas shopping. You can't move, no traffic. And her heart, her, her chest isn't moving. And so it's now, do I CPR or do I drive? Do I do CPR? What do you do? What do you do? And so that's what I asked God. I said, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And about that time, I saw a motorcycle cop come in. I got his attention. And I told him, I said, I think my sister's had a heart attack. She's not breathing. There was a new hospital. It was open seven blocks away. It had been open two weeks. If it had been the old hospital, there would have been no question. He made the traffic part. He got us over there. Dorothy was blue by the time we got there. They took her in. I had had her at the doctor's that morning and was getting a prescription refilled at the drugstore and pulling out of the shopping center there when she choked twice, her head rolled back, and that was it. I uh, got her there in the hospital. I told them a uh, symptom or two she had been having, and they went to work on her. And they came in. They told me there was very uh, was not very likely Dorothy was going to survive. And I had already accepted that from looking at it, and I thought, God, you know, 45... Years to the day, I can't believe it's happening again. And then they came in and told me that they were, had been able to resuscitate her, but she was in a deep coma. They had done an emergency dialysis, and that they wouldn't know what we have until she wakes up, if she wakes up. 25 days, Dorothy did not wake up. When Dorothy woke up, Dorothy didn't wake up. Someone woke up, but it's not Dorothy anymore. My sister has no memory anymore. It took away all of her short-term memory, and it scrambled most of her long-term memory. She had to learn to walk and talk and be continent again. She had to learn how to do all those things. And we put her in a nursing home for about four months while we had a therapist working with her around the clock to get her to be able to do those things. And then she decided she wanted to go home. She wanted to go home. She had, I think, the idea in her mind if she went home, everything would be okay. Of course, it wasn't going to be okay, but I told her, I said, Dorothy, I'll take you home and keep you in your home as long as it's humanly possible to do so. So I went and I got someone to stay with Dorothy, and it had to be someone. You see, my sister is uh, insulin-dependent diabetic, and so she could not be trusted to take her medication or not take her medication when she wasn't supposed because she couldn't remember if she had taken one, two, or she might take it five times. You never know. And um, we had to stop her from feeding her dogs. She killed one of her dogs by overfeeding it because she couldn't remember she'd fed it. And you know a dog will eat every time you put it in front of them, you know. And um, Dorothy lives in the moment because she... You can be with her, and 10 minutes later, she won't remember happened 10 minutes before. But she knows who I am, and she knows who J.D. is. And, um, you know, that's this being prompt and being there for someone, you know. Living in the now. Living in the now. That's what this step is all about, to get you where you are living in today. Looking at your day, each day. Well, see, my sister has about each 15 minutes. You know, and she's been a good example for me on how to live. It's real funny because she get she gets real angry easy, which she never did before. Uh, and she'll get real, real angry, real, real quick. And I'll grab her by the shoulders and I'll say, "Dorothy," and she'll go, "What?" And I'll stick my tongue out at her, 
And then she'll stick her tongue out at me, and we both laughed, and now she doesn't remember what it was. So see, not remembering isn't necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> you know, My 10-step journal are letters to God in which I tell God about my day, and I reflect over my day, and I look for the good and bad and any amends I might owe for that day. And I try to do it as soon as possible so I don't forget about it, gloss over, and then have that yucky feeling about something's not quite right and I don't know what it is. It's because I haven't looked at something, you know. I had a lot of self-pity and depression about Dorothy. It was about the same time, like say, when I was sitting there in the waiting room waiting for Dorothy to come out of the coma. And I had somebody from Al-Anon group there with me day and night, day and night, the whole time. And um, the doctor came in to talk to me about my sister, and he noticed I was shaking, and I couldn't quit shaking. And it started that day. And he said, you know, you really need to be seen. And so I went to the physician and found out that I had a heart condition. So I'm in one hospital. Dorothy's in another. I'm having a heart catheterization, and Dorothy's in a coma. And I'm going, God, if all nuns ever taught me anything, I can't take care of her if I can't take care of me. So it's very imperative that I be able to take care of me and to follow what the doctor says, you know. And there's always going to be something to be done on life's journey, you know. We accept life on life's terms, and sometimes those terms are pretty hard. And the year of 2000 was extremely difficult, extremely difficult year, because here Dorothy was just coming out of her coma, and here I was with a heart condition. One of my dogs died. A few months, not a few months, a few weeks later, one of the girls I sponsored uh, had a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in her lung, and she died. She was getting married in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then five months to the day, one dog died. The other one grieved to death and died. You know, it just seemed like everywhere I went and everywhere I turned, I was losing things, losing things. And it was such a, if you couldn't live one day at a time, you weren't just going, you weren't going to be able to make it. And then that was the year of the ice storm. And we were truly powerless because we lost power when the ice came down on the trees and the trees came down on the power lines. And we went for two weeks without power. I was cold. I was hungry. And I sat there and I watched all the fish in my aquarium, some I'd had 15, 17 years, watch every one of them suffocate and freeze in my house. It was 20-something degrees. Couldn't get out. Couldn't get out because of the power lines down. They would tell you, stay where you are. And it wasn't just an area of town. It was the the most of the state. I mean, y'all probably heard about it on the, the news, you know. And then we got power back for five days and it went again for another week. So we lost all of our food twice. You know, it was a real difficult, real difficult uh, time to go through. And uh, very much, I went into a very deep depression. It was like it was just too much. I couldn't get one thing grief processed until the next thing happened, until the next thing, and now on the way. And I, you know, I had always said, I don't understand people who are depressed. I do now. It's like, well, I needed that experience, I guess, you know. But it was sort of funny, uh, J.D. made the comment to me. He said, I've got to get you out of the house. I said, yes, it would be good because suicide has become an option. And you know, the thing of it is, it's like you're shut off. You can't get to a meeting because you can't get out of your house. You can't call anyone because your phones are dead, you know. Because after the power goes out, most of us have the 
the plug-in phones and stuff, your power goes out, so does your phone. And your cell phone will only last a day or two without recharging, and so there you are. And it was being like totally shut off from everybody and everything. It was a very, very dark time. Uh, we finally got out one night, and uh, we were eating supper, and J.D. says, Honey, look out the window. Isn't it gorgeous? It's snowing. I thought, I'll go across this table, and I'll strangle life out of your body. <laughs> it is not it is not beautiful. Snow and cold. I mean, I've been freezing for days. And isn't the snow nice? No, it is not nice. And so we're leaving there, and he says, we must go to Walmart. I said, oh, God, yeah, we've died, go to hell. we got to go to Walmart first. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what, when you die, I'm going to put you in a box out in Walmart parking lot just so you'll be comfortable. And he said, okay, you know. We go in there, and what he wanted, he wanted to get some bird seed because he knew our birds who are dependent upon us, that we feed them all the time. You know, when your birds are used to being fed all the time, they have a hard time too. So he was getting, you know, several bags. And it's so funny because my husband has um, a phrase he uses that is one of those that's like a pushing a button you know, that gets on your last nerve, and then my husband is hard of hearing, and he won't say, I didn't hear you. He'll say, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Well, that is irritating to know that you're saying, and he's, he's blocking you out, not paying attention. So that particular night, he's there, and he's getting these humongous 50-pound bags of bird seed, and he's putting them in the cart, and I said to him, if you turn them upside down, then the barcode will be up, and you'll only have to handle them once and not have to rearrange it when you get to the checkout. He didn't pay any attention. Here goes the next one. And when he puts the third one in, he says, You know, if I was to turn that upside down... (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, What the hell did you think I said? And he said, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. I went, That does it. And I sprang and I grabbed him by the throat. And I had him knocked over and down in the bird seed. And I'm like, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. And he goes, my God. And there was this one woman watching. She's going, go, girl. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it got funny to me. That's what saved him. It got funny, and I started laughing, and I couldn't quit laughing. I had to lay down in the bird seat. I'm laying, I'm going, God, this is so funny. He said, we didn't get you out of the house a minute too soon. <laughs> that broke the depression. That laughter. See, the laughter is so healing. And what I realized, laying there in the bird seat, dying laughing, I hadn't laughed hardly at all that year. Because nothing had been funny that was going on in my life. Everything was losing, losing, dying, being taken away. I had lost the laughter from my life. And how important and how healing laughter is. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. Mm-hmm.